Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of your wonderful faces. Um, yeah, I'm excited about Ash Wednesday because Ash Wednesday signifies the beginning of Lent. And Lent signifies the ramp up to Easter. It's already almost Easter. We just finished celebrating Christmas. What is going on? Uh, really excited about that. Before we jump into the sermon today, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, our church participated with all of Foursquare in 21 days of prayer and fasting. And what I think happens during our times of prayer and fasting is a couple of things. One, we get to see God do some things because we're asking for it for the first time and we never thought to ask before. And two, because we're focusing on God and we're going without so that we can pick up his presence in prayer, we realize that he's been doing things all around us that we haven't seen all along, right? Uh, and so I wanted to share some stories of some things that have been happening in the life of our church uh, in the wake of the 21 days of prayer and fasting because I think it's important that we celebrate together and celebrate what God has been doing. Uh, there was a man named Tim. He was experiencing some really severe back pain. He had a, he had a procedure scheduled, and uh, he came forward for prayer when we did our uh, message on healing during the James series. And after that day of prayer, he did not feel an ounce of pain uh, after that at all. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. What's crazy is that, so he, he came back to the doctor, he still had the procedure scheduled, and the doctors looked at his back and they were like, based on everything that we're seeing, you should be in extreme pain right now. It doesn't make sense that you're not feeling pain. And he still went forward with the procedure. So the healing was, yeah, it's, it's, such, a, it's such an interesting story and such a cool thing that God blessed him with those couple of months of no pain. Um, there was another person who was picking up the pieces after losing their spouse. Uh, and they were here at Red Hills and they met somebody who loves Jesus. So spiritual love connection, we love that. That's a testimony too. Uh, there was a man named Andrew who he wrote in, and he just wanted to talk about why he was grateful for our community. And at first, I was wondering, like, why is he talking about this in the 21 days of fasting and prayer? And he was just talking about how um, he's just thrilled to be making friends, to be going deeper with people, and to be finding connection with one another. And, you know, I think that is actually miraculous <laughs> in our culture. That is really, really good at pushing people away, at isolation, at polarization, that we can be a people who the, the light on the, the city on a hill, the light in the darkness is that we come together when the culture is pulling apart. I think that's really, really cool. And there was a man named Dennis. Uh, there is a man named Dennis. He's still with us. Um, <laughs> not past tense. Uh, he had, uh, has congestive heart failure. Um, and in January, he suffered a, 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 maybe a few silent heart attacks that he didn't know that he was having. And he got some tests done and they found that his, his heart was pumping at about 30% efficiency. And so uh, he went back in for some tests to kind of see what was going on with the blockages. And after we prayed for him, he went in for those tests, and uh, they said that they couldn't see the damage to his heart that they saw before. There were no blockages that were apparent in the tests, and um, the pumping efficiency had gone up by a significant percentage from when they last looked at him. And he says, I believe that God has healed my heart. Um, you know, when we pray for things, we don't always get exactly what we're praying for in the way and the timing that we're praying for them. But sometimes we do. And I think it's important for us to celebrate together when God does something like that in our midst and to continue to trust him when it doesn't look the way we want it to. Amen. So let's go to God in gratitude this morning in prayer. God, we thank you that you are always doing a good thing. God, we thank you that you are a good father who cares for his children and that when we ask, it's never in vain. We thank you that you know exactly what we need and you always provide. We love you, and we celebrate what you've been doing in our community, and we continue to ask that you would uh, provide breakthrough for people, relationship with people, connection with people, and that there would be healing in the city. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so we are in week five of our series called Grace and Peace. This is a series through the book of Philippians, which has been really, really exciting. Um, And today, we're going to be talking about a truth that is difficult to accept. We're going to be in Philippians chapter three, if you want to turn here while I'm talking. But sometimes the truth is hard to accept, isn't it? It is, because sometimes it's way easier to exist in a lie, because the world made more sense to me when I believed the lie. For example... I don't want to accept that in this world there is a real species of spider that hides in the ground and it's so big that it eats birds and rodents. I didn't want to know that. (laughs) My life was far simpler and easier without knowing that, right? I don't want to accept that my phone screen has 10 times the bacteria of the average toilet seat. I didn't want to know that. My life was easier without embracing that truth, right? This is a little embarrassing, but I just learned an embarrassingly short time ago that ponies were not the same thing as baby horses. I thought, and some of you were like, I thought they were. No, they're not. They're a different species of equestrian animal. Um, Anyway, that's just me working out my stuff with all of you. Thank you for being my therapist today. Um, No one was telling me how stupid I was by calling baby uh, horses ponies. I didn't want to accept that I was so dense, right, that I was so dumb. Truth can be hard to accept. Right? Just ask Jack Nicholson. Some of you will get this and some of you won't. And that's fine. We'll just move on. (laughs) All it takes is a few good men. Okay, so one of the most difficult truths for us to receive is that God loves us for no good reason. At least no reason that matters to us. His paramount motivation for everything that he has done, is that he wants to be with us. That doesn't make sense. His plan to forgive us, to cleanse us, to liberate us, to, it, all, to justify us, none of that was set in motion because of anything that we did. Jesus didn't come because of what we did to earn it. Jesus came despite of what we did to reject him. Now, don't raise your hands because you could get in trouble for this, but how many of you have ever asked this question to a romantic partner or a spouse? Why do you love me? It's funny because there really is no satisfactory answer to that question, right? Think about it. Why well, I love you because you're so beautiful. Well, beauty fades. What happens when it does? Why well, I love you because you're really kind. Even the kindest person has their bad days. What happens when they don't show that kindness to you? Do, you? do you lose your love? Well, I love you because you're smart. Well, there's always someone smarter out there, especially in my case. I love you because you're, fill in the blank with anything you want, I guarantee you, the person that you love will fall short of that thing one day. They will, because they're human. Notice that in a traditional exchange of wedding vows, there isn't a declaration of all the great things the couple loves about each other. Many couples, including my wife and I, they take time to talk about all the things they love about the other person because there's a lot of things to love about my wife and I wanted to tell people why she was so great. A lot more things on my list than on hers. That's okay. Um, I'm kidding. (laughs) But notice that the covenant language doesn't include those things. The covenant outlines all the things that can take place, and yet I still choose to love the other person in sickness, in poverty, in hardship. Because covenant isn't about preference. It isn't about taste. Covenant 
It's about faithfulness. Covenant doesn't say, well, I choose you because of A, B, and C. Actually, covenant says, I choose you despite X, Y, and Z. When you fall short of the kindness that I've come to respect in you, I still choose you. When the things I find attractive about you begin to fade or change, I still choose you. When you turn out to be something other than what I've come to expect, which always happens, I still choose you. Covenant declares that you could fall short of everything I love about you, and I will still choose you because more than anything you could do for me, more than anything you could give me, more than any way that you could benefit me, I want to be with you. I choose you. Now, obviously, there are circumstances in covenants that we make with one another, mainly in marriage, where someone who has made a covenant chooses to leave that covenant through their actions of unfaithfulness or abuse. And the scriptures even give us instances where breaking that covenant may even be wise in specific situations. But notice that God never gave himself that out when it came to his people. Yahweh continued to show up time and time again for the Israelites, even when they broke their covenant and spat in God's face, because he always wanted to give humanity the opportunity to turn back to him. As many times as humanity failed God, God always welcomed them back, right? In Matthew 18, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times should we forgive somebody who's wronged us? And eventually he gets to 70 times 7. Now, this isn't supposed to be like an actual number where you're like, oh, you're at 482. Watch yourself. That's not what it is. It's meant to be like an eternal state of forgiveness, right? Forgive always, no matter what. Read through the Old Testament sometime, because no matter what humans could do to God, no matter how many ways they invented to betray him, he kept his eyes on the horizon of their hearts. And at the first sign of repentance, at the first sign that they wanted to choose to turn back and run to him, he ran to meet them. He ran to meet humanity, like the parable of the two sons, right? While the prodigal was still a long way off, the father was, he saw him and was filled with compassion for him, ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So in our section of scripture today, this is the conversation that Paul is having with the Philippians. When one enters into the, the, the life of Jesus, what is the goal of that existence, and how do we get there? Why are we following Jesus, and how do we get there? And usually our difficulty of answering that question lies in the limitations in our minds regarding God's unfathomable love, our lack of context for that kind of affection which only the Father can give. So let's go to the Word together, Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul's like, I'm a super Jew. <laughs> like the pets I have have gotten circumcised. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's such a Hebrew that he doesn't even let the women in his life make him coffee. Boo! <laughs> 
Hebrews. Sorry, that's... I'll go home. Okay. (laughs) Continuing on in the sacred text. Okay. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ and righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's the the, the thrust of this passage. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Okay. So now we know at this point that Paul is writing from where? Prison. Correct. Yes. He's writing from prison. And he's encouraging the church in Philippi, even though he's the one in chains, even though he's the one suffering, he's writing letters of encouragement to his church. In the first two chapters, they've kind of carried this tone of celebration, right, of encouragement. But now in chapter 3, the letter shifts in its tone, and now he's warning them. He basically tells them that there are those who will preach a false gospel and distort Christian spirituality into something that Jesus never intended it to be. He's warning them. And here's likely what Paul's addressing. At the time of the early years of the church, there are many, many Jews who are coming to faith in the the Messiah, Jesus. Um, and, And they're realizing that their whole belief system this entire time, everything in the law has been pointing to Jesus. And so they've come to faith in him and the resurrection as the fulfillment of their faith. However, there are also many Gentiles, non-Jews, from a bunch of other cultures who are also coming to faith in Jesus. And a lot of them did not have the context of the law of Moses and the Torah and the Old Testament. All they knew of God is what they knew of Jesus and the resurrection. And that gospel is accessible to all people in all backgrounds and all cultures. But there are Jews that are insisting that the Gentiles convert and adhere to the law of Moses and practice Judaism in their newfound faith. The thought is that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews. So therefore, those who come to know Jesus, they need to become fully Jewish culturally. They need to eat like Jews, worship like Jews, and be circumcised like Jews. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, we're going to talk about it a lot, so just turn to your neighbor discreetly and ask them, and they'll explain it to you. But Paul... He's warning the Philippians, like in Galatians, right, that that this is not the gospel, that the Messiah is not just the Messiah for the Jews. He's the Messiah of all humanity. So what unites brothers and sisters in Christ is not Jewish custom, but Christ crucified and risen again. Get them baptized and get them taking communion. That's what he says is going to center people around who Jesus is. So this whole chapter is written to address when Christian spirituality kind of goes amok, runs amok. Christian faith means that in order to come to Jesus, you have to come through the law. And that's a false gospel. 
Paul calls people who use this gospel, he calls them dogs. This is kind of a reversal of a common Jewish sting to Gentiles. They would call them unclean dogs. So Paul is accusing these kinds of Jews for becoming the very thing they despise by preaching this gospel. He calls them mutilators of the flesh, which kind of likens this, this circumcision to be more like a pagan ritual to appease a pagan god. It's meant to evoke the image of the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament, right? Elijah, they're trying to call down fire to burn up the altar, and the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves to try to get the attention of their god, to summon the power of their god. So why is Paul being so harsh here? Because religion without relationship is not only a false gospel, it's idolatry. Because if I worship a Jesus who demands that I fulfill the law to get to him, I'm not worshiping the Jesus of the scriptures. Now what did Jesus say about the law? That he came to abolish it? No, he actually said, I have come to fulfill it. That all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the law, the law of Moses, everything has pointed to me, and I am the fulfillment of the law. So if we want to be transformed in our behaviors, in our mindsets, in our practices, in our spirituality, we need not fulfill religious transformation to get to Jesus. We need to meet Jesus. And in the knowing, in the remaining, in the abiding that's when I get transformed from the inside out. Does that make sense? So write this down if you're taking notes. The biggest obstacle on the path to intimacy with God is the stuff we do for him without the desire to know him. The biggest obstacle on the pathway to intimacy with God is the stuff we do for him without the desire to know him. So Paul deliberately uses this language to evoke the image of the prophets of Baal and they're trying everything they can to try to summon the attention of their God, right? And not much has changed, really. We have this stubborn narrative that is really difficult to overcome. We have been deceived into believing that God really does not find us worth his time. That God just sort of tolerates us. That when we turn in our time card at the end of our shift, if we've checked a couple of the right religious boxes, he'll let us slide into heaven. And that's how we limit the hope of the gospel. But that gospel fails to understand the unimaginable compassion, mercy, and forgiveness and grace of God. It fails to embrace this truth that everything God ever did and everything God ever will do, he did because his paramount desire for us is that he wants us to be with him. And that's hard for us to understand that he could not fathom a reality where he didn't get to see your face every day forever. That's what God was contending for. He chose us out of our sin, out of our slavery, because he wants a relationship with you. He chose us not because of what we could do for him, but because of who we are to him. We are his. Some of us in the room today, we're living out of a hope of a false gospel, and we don't even know it, not even aware of it. Your daily bread is not the truth that, that, that Christ has affection for you. The fact that he broke his body and he spilled his blood because he longs to be with you. Some of us, our bread is actually a counterfeit gospel, which tells us that every morning when we look in the mirror, we need to prove ourselves. That we're only ever as loved as we are holy. Brothers and sisters, 
we are made holy because we are loved. Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to live according to his commands, if they want to be holy, they need to abide in his love. The love, the abiding, the remaining, the connection, that's what needs to come first. That's how we live out a life of grace and peace. Because when we don't do that, when we don't abide in his love, that's when we get the Pharisees. That's when we get legalism. That's when we get rigid religion, which is void of grace, which is void of peace. You know, the scriptures, they have this concept that pops up in places in the scriptures like uh, Deuteronomy, Galatians, Romans, and it begs this question, what good is it to be circumcised in my body and yet remain uncircumcised in my heart? Right? What good is it to, to have a perfect performance on the outside without an inner transformation? Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs because they're meticulously cleaned and tended to on the outside, but on the inside there's rancid smell of death. They're unclean. So Paul urges them, urges the Philippians, do not boast in your ability to perform well. Don't do that. Because he is someone, if he wanted to boast in his works, he totally could. But the passage reads that he counts them as garbage. Some translations say dung, rubbish, excrement. It's kind of a strong word. And what's, what's funny is that it's pretty normal in this honor culture to kind of list your credentials and talk about all the reasons why you're qualified to be teaching or doing whatever you're doing. But Paul kind of reverses this dynamic in this honor culture. And he says, all this stuff that I'm really, really good at, Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised in the eighth day, super Jew, right? Nothing. It's garbage. Guys, I crushed the law. I was the best law abider there was. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, but it doesn't mean anything because all of it actually kept me from knowing God. Christ revealed himself to me not because of those things, but in spite of those things. The things that Paul was doing for God were the very things that were keeping him from knowing God because they were efforts conjured out of his own reason, out of his own strength, out of his own morality, out of his own will, out of his own wisdom. Paul had access to the scriptures. He was educated. He memorized the Pentateuch. He was a respected teacher, but all of it meant nothing because it didn't allow him to know God. The only way he could do that was meet Jesus. Knowing God is the only reason for any of this. It's the only reason. If we look at the book of Genesis, right, we learn that, that human beings were created in the image of God. Maybe you've heard that word, imago Dei. This is very intentional language. The garden is described like a temple in that, in that passage, deliberately, right? And what was a temple back then in the ancient world? Well, it was where pagan cultures came to worship their God. Because their God would dwell in that temple, they would make sacrifices and try to get them to do whatever they wanted them to do. And in that temple, there was a statue or an image erected of that God to signify their presence there. Notice that in the Genesis story, in the creation story, the garden is described like this temple where the presence of God dwells and the people worship him, but there's one thing missing. There's no image. There's no statue. Human beings were the image of God. We were the statue. Instead of idols in a temple, there were people in a garden. God gives his people radical dignity, radical love. God made human beings with his very breath, right? That's what distinguishes us from the animals and all the rest of the creation. He breathed his breath, his ruach, his spirit into us. 
which means we can never be truly alive without it because our existence is inextricably linked to the spirit of God. Therefore, you can write this down, to be apart from God is to exist as something less than human. To be apart from God is to exist as something less than human. And God wants your full humanity restored the way it was intended to be. Everything Jesus was sent here to do was, was to redeem humanity back to this way of living. To be fully human is to be in, in full loving union with God, known by him and knowing him. That's the whole point. That is the thesis statement of the Bible. That's the magnum opus. That's what it's all been about, that God wants to be with his created children. That's the whole point. Life with Jesus is not about an exchange of goods and services. It's the gift of grace. It's not about living for love. It's about living from love. You can write that down. Are you living from love or are you are, are living for love or are you living from love? How many of us feel like we need to conjure the attention of God? That we need to be like the priests of Baal, doing crazy things to get him to notice us. If that's you, you have full permission to set aside that false gospel. To set aside that version of Jesus which demands performance to gain acceptance. And embrace the biblical Jesus who offers us acceptance as the pathway to reconciliation. Back to the Genesis story, the first day of creation, the first day that humans had in creation was the day of rest, a day of simply being with God, and their work flowed out of that relationship, flowed out of that place. Let your work, let your devotion flow from a place of love and acceptance. Don't let it be a pathway to it. He's already gifted it to you. But the narrative of earned approval, it's powerful, right? There's this distortion in our hearts that assumes that the pathway to God's love is what we can do. But God's love doesn't come because of anything we can do. It comes despite all the things that we do and all the things we could never do. And that's why resurrection is so important. New life. It's not just a reboot, right? The, the transfiguration of our old self is the redemption of everything that we're not and everything that we're intended to be. And Paul boasts in that. He says the goal is that he's running towards resurrection life. That's the promise that's set before him. And he's living into the truth of that resurrection life right now. He knows that it's not something that we can have fully on this side of eternity, but it's something that we can contend for. There's this knowing, there's a pursuit of this knowledge. He says it twice, that I want to know Christ. He wants intimacy with him. He wants to pursue an abiding life. He wants to be formed in his likeness. And when he talks about it being a race, he's not talking about racing against people. He's not going against everything he just said and making our faith about a competition. No, it's about endurance. It's this language that he can endure anything. It's about faithfulness, that no matter what hits him, no matter what comes his way, that he keeps the faith because he knows what awaits him. He knows that what Christ has offered him is perfect loving union in a new creation and a resurrected life. Perfect union with God. And you can write this down. There is nothing our souls long for more than perfect union with God. Every desire that we have down here is a faint reflection of the ultimate desire to be with God. There's a quote that's attributed to G.K. Chesterton. 
he said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. Because there are these deep longings in us that we try to satisfy in ways that won't satisfy. Augustine says that the only way to find our rest is to find our rest in thee. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. It's built in. We're hardwired for this longing to be unified with the divine love of God, to be reconciled to the creator. It's in us. It's the ruach. It's the breath. We know there's something missing without the spirit of God. And that's the climax of John's picture in Revelation, right? That God will be with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us and be our God. Paul is urging his brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on, on, set on what's coming. Resurrection, it's not about getting back what we lost. It's about receiving for the first time what we never knew we needed, what we never knew what we were searching for. The things that we see dimly on this side of eternity will be made clear to us in blinding clarity in Revelation. That's what's coming. So he says, keep going. Keep going. Every scar, every wound, every loss, every grief, every pain will find redemption in the resurrection. Keep going. Don't look back. He says, I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't attained the goal, but I know not to look back. Because we have a tendency to do this, right? We've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and we don't like the freedom in the desert. I love Emmanuel's word last week, right? That sometimes we like slavery because it's familiar. And we think we have the system figured out and we have some control and some agency in this old way of being. I can do A, B, and C and get X, Y, and Z. And it's not perfect, but at least I know how to work the system. And Jesus is inviting us into trust. Freedom is scary. But if we trust in him, if we abide in him, we know it's going to be better than slavery. There's this constant war within all of us that we want to entertain what might have been And we think, maybe I don't have it so good with Jesus. Maybe it's actually better back here. What's your Egypt? What sinful practice, what thing has deceived you into thinking that what that was is better than what God has for you? What fruit has been set in front of you that's convinced you that you'll be better for it and you won't die? What city is behind you that's being consumed by the fire of God, but you just want to look back one time? Our past wounds of trauma our addictions, our sin, our losses, they conditioned us to believe that survival is the best case scenario. But survival is less than human. Survival, coping, it's just a way to delay death. What we need is not survival, what we need is resurrection. It's not just the preservation of a broken version of our life, it's the fully redeemed life we were always meant to have. Sin just serves as a way to cope with a broken life, but Jesus offers us a hope of a way to flourish amidst a resurrected life. So you can write this down. Sin is the temptation to settle for survival, but Jesus invites us into renewal. Every version of what I desire on the earth is a pale, broken, dying version of a fully resurrected life. The truth of that hope. And our constant struggle is that we want to look back to what we know rather than trusting what's coming. Paul says, I haven't reached resurrection yet, but it is far better to practice eternity now than to look back on destruction and live in that. What Jesus did on the cross, it assures us that even if we fail, we'll never lose. Even when we die, we're not defeated. 
because the resurrection is a promise. Think about the cross. The powers of evil, everything evil that we had to offer, exhausted themselves at the crucifixion and was rendered ineffective. Light had come into the world and darkness could not overtake it. That's what the cross was. There is no diagnosis, there is no loss, there is no grief, there is no addiction, there is no broken relationship, there is no sin that can threaten the victory of the cross in your life. It is ultimate. It is one already. Resurrection is coming. So don't look back. Don't go back to the way things were before. Strain towards what is ahead. Endure for the sake of the gospel because it's better than slavery. With that, I'm actually going to go to communion. We're going to go to communion together. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And I actually want to talk about this for a moment. Oh, thank you, Kate. I think there are some of you in the room today that maybe you've been debating coming to church for a while. Maybe you've been thinking more and more about what role faith has in your life. And maybe against a lot of odds, you've actually walked through the doors today and you didn't even think you'd be here. And maybe you've been believing a false gospel. Maybe the way you've looked at God is this tyrannical being that's waiting for you to prove yourself to him so that you can find yourself worthy of his attention. I want to speak this truth in your life right now. You are the image of God. You are designed to be in unity and relationship with him. And he longs to be with you. He desires it. He wants that. He wants you. So if you're ready, if you're ready to step into a life with Jesus, you're ready to taste and see. You're ready to to see if what Jesus offers is better than the world. It is, by the way. It's a sign. They're calling for you. Maybe today's your day. So I want you to reflect. We're going to hold these elements. And by the way, if you haven't accepted Jesus, I actually don't want you to take these. Because taking this means that we've embraced the truth of what this means, even though it's mysterious. We've embraced the truth. I feel like God wants to speak to us. Maybe there's those of you in the room who you've been following Jesus for a long time, but there is that false gospel. There is that version of Jesus that likes to kind of peek their way into your thoughts that tells you that you need to wake up in the morning and prove yourself. That begs you to earn the affection that God has given to you freely. Don't look back. That's the world. That's sin. That's not what Christ offers you. Look ahead. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who every day looks at you and says, I have called you. I have chosen you. I love you. I want you. I accept you. Always and forever. So take a moment and reflect on these elements together and then we'll take them and sing. Jesus, we 
are in awe of your unfailing love, your audacious affection that is offered to us like a beautiful gift. We thank you. I pray that this would be the truth that settles into our hearts, that you have accepted us, and that you redeem us from the inside out. And Lord, I pray for those who are sitting here, maybe their heart is thumping in their chest, and it feels like a big moment. They're ready to meet you. They're ready to encounter you. I pray that you would give them courage. After the worship team's done playing the song, we're going to have our prayer team up here in the front. And if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, I want you to come forward. There's no formula. There's no like special incantation that we say. <laughs> but prayer is a really good place to start to tell God where you're at, to tell him that you are ready for a new life, that you want to be forgiven, that you want to let go of your sin, that you want to let go of your past, and you want to step into life with him, that you believe that Jesus is God, that you believe he really did die, that he really did rise again for you. If you're ready to accept that truth, if you're ready to accept that gospel, he is ready to welcome you with open arms. When the worship team gets done and the prayer team comes up, that's your moment. Come let us pray with you. We'd love to walk with you in that first step. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. On the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it. And he said, I am going to break my body for you. So eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood poured out for you. 